0: Welcome to Lucretius Today. This is a podcast dedicated to the poet Lucretius, who wrote On the Nature of Things, the only complete presentation of Epicurean philosophy left to us from the ancient world. Each week we'll walk you through the Epicurean text and we'll discuss how Epicurean philosophy can apply to you today. If you find the Epicurean worldview attractive, we invite you to join us in the study of Epicurus at epicureanfriends.com, where you'll find a discussion thread for each of our podcast episodes and many other topics. We're now in the middle of a series of podcasts intended to provide a general overview of Epicurean philosophy based on the organizational structure employed by Norman DeWitt in his book, Epicurus and His Philosophy. Now let's join the discussion. Welcome to episode 161 of Lucretius Today. We're in the middle of chapter 8 with the sections Sensations and Epicurus, Not an Empiricist. Both of those are related to each other, so we're covering them together, and we've already been talking to some degree about what's been the general overview of the sensation subsection, but what DeWitt talks about here is that in the canon, the sensations denotes the five senses, vision, hearing, smell, taste, and touch, and DeWitt says nothing else. Frequently, it seems to me that when you talk about the brain receiving images from outside, you ought to be at least considering that to be another direct contact with the outside world. And then, of course, today we talk about senses of balance and other potential senses that the body may have that are not as significant by any means as these first five, but may exist. The issue being, as DeWitt talks about, that these senses qualify as criteria because they are direct physical contacts between the living being and the external physical reality. DeWitt says that they also qualify as a criteria because they are irrational, they are incapable of memory, and they pronounce no judgments the sensations just register what they're receiving and then transmit that to the mind without comment on what it is and without any sense of recognition of what it is, that the recognition function is something that's performed in the mind and is a separate process from the operation of the senses themselves. And I think that's a very important point, that this information that we're receiving through the five senses are not being commented on by the organs that receive them.
1: Yeah, and part of what that does, Cassius, is that prevents kind of a, an end run for reason, you know, to get back into the canon. We spent a long time talking about how reason is, is not part of Epicurus's canon of epistemology. It takes place later in the process. But if we were to speak of senses as being rational, capable of memory, and able to pronounce judgment, that would seem to suggest that reason had crept back in.
0: Yeah, reason or opinion of any kind. And that's a topic that we're going to tackle in much more detail when we get to anticipations. Unfortunately, because of the few texts we have on it, it's controversial and poorly understood. Whatever anticipations are, it seems to be that what makes something a part of the canon of truth is that it receives information without commenting on it, without forming an opinion about it, without processing it in your mind using reason or any other method you might like to think about. It's a pre-processing part of consciousness, might be one way to say
1: it. In a sense, it's kind of part of the raw material that consciousness has to operate on.
0: Yeah, since the criterion of truth is supposed to be something like a ruler or a yardstick that we're comparing things to, it's always seemed to me like it would be sort of a feedback loop that would distort everything if you could create something in your mind in terms of an opinion and then inject that back into the yardstick as if you've formed the yardstick as a result of thinking about something. I don't think that's the way these things are supposed to work, and surely the sensations are not supposed to work that way. But when we get to the anticipations discussion, it will be a lot more complex because the existing texts do seem to talk about a processing function that is hard to distinguish from opinion forming. But for today, the big issue that we're going to be discussing is this whole issue of whether Epicurus was an empiricist or not. A lot of people today, in loose discussion anyway, will consider empiricism to mean that there's just simply nothing in your mind that does not come through the senses. The question of empiricism in the modern world focuses on taking the sensations as absolutely true and that basically all information comes to us through that way. DeWitt begins the discussion of this by pointing out that Epicurean physics rests on the 12 elementary principles, which we don't have a list of anymore, but which if we go to the letter to Herodotus and compare it to Lucretius, we can see that there's a very parallel structure of observation about atoms and the nature of the universe and so forth. So DeWitt's first point about empiricism is that Epicurus takes those elementary principles, like nothing comes from nothing, nothing goes to nothing, that Epicurus takes those principles and then uses them like theorems of geometry, deducing from those principles other conclusions, such as his conclusion about the size of the universe or the fact that the universe, in his view, is eternal in time. He obviously has not taken a position on those issues based on direct observation of the creation of the universe or direct observation of the size of the universe by flying out through space. He's taking these positions based on deducing from his first theorems implications of what they must require if they are in fact true. So DeWitt's point here is that that is a crucially important part of Epicurean philosophy, And it is not based on direct observation through the senses. And so if we did nothing other in this section than talk about that, that would be sufficient alone to show that Epicurus is not simply taking the position that all sensations are true,
1: all sensations are all I know, and therefore that's the end of our thought process. Yeah, and it kind of works on two levels. You can Take the elementary principles and build from them, but you can also build toward them. So, for example, in the case as to whether anything can return to nothing, Lucretius in the Ralph Humphreys translation says, for example, that an indiscriminate common violence would eventually bring an end to everything and there would be nothing left. So, it's, it's that kind of approach that's built into it, which he's describing here as like theorems of geometry. DeWitt will point out that the style that Epicurus uses is drawn from Euclid and his book on geometry, because it was very simple and very easy to understand. Epicurus's letters are not written, generally speaking, in a high style that would typify the work of Cicero or Plato. He wants it to be understandable.
0: Right. And when you refer to Plato... As with much of what we're doing, going back to compare Epicurus to Plato is very helpful because, as DeWitt points out, the reason that Lucretius and Epicurus himself are stressing the evidence of the senses, the reliability of the senses, the fact that one sensation cannot contradict another, the fact that reason cannot operate without the senses, the reason is because Plato and these other people, even Aristotle to an extent, had alleged that there was no way to reach conclusions about what's true and what's not true based on the senses because they're inherently deceptive. The cave analogy, what Epicurus needed to do first was to set up a theory of how the sensations are, in fact, reliable. And so Lucretius in particular spends a lot of time talking about illusions and how images work. And how it is understandable if you examine the process that the sensations are reliable, they're the only thing we have to make our decisions based on, and that reason cannot contradict the senses without some other basis because it has no basis other than the sensations on which to work. So the first aspect of understanding why we're even talking about this is that we're combating skepticism. The idea that nothing can be known at all. So we first establish that the sensations are reliable and how to work with them. But that doesn't mean that we stop there. And that's the point we're hitting on today. You don't stop at just observing what something looks like. Your mind is then going to process it later on after you receive that data. And the processing of it is going to be through deductive reasoning, as we're talking about. Which means, importantly, that there's no reason to put Epicurus on the shelf and say that, oh, Epicurus says all sensations are true. That's what we go by. Epicurus is a very deep thinker and telling you that you take the information from the sensations and then you derive from them using deductive reasoning conclusions about things that are hidden. as the word that Epicurus uses a lot, such as what happens when you're dead such as whether there's a supernatural God, such as big issues regarding faith and religion and all sorts of things that you don't have direct evidence on. Epicurus doesn't leave you blind and say that, well, if you don't see it, then you don't believe it. That's not the way Epicurean thinking works.
1: Yeah, and DeWitt also points out here that Epicurus, by taking a position between skepticism and empiricism, when he criticizes one of them in the view of certain people to align himself with the other, and DeWitt is suggesting that a lot of the confusion on these issues has come in because of things like that.
0: Yeah. And you know, I can see the possibility that somebody's thinking to themselves, I said, listen to this, why are we even talking about this? Who cares whether he's an <laughs> empiricist or not? You know, empiricism's great, isn't it? The reason we're talking about it is the implications that flow from those things. If you are the type person who is very scientifically minded and demands evidence and facts and then reasons based on those facts, then that's exactly what Epicurus is doing. But there is, in philosophy, the school of thought as to empiricism that takes a much flatter and less in-depth position about how thought processes go. And so this is an important thing that's worth covering because you need to have a full understanding of how proper thought processes should go, or else you're subject to being confused by other schools who think that you should just do what God tells you to do, or that you just don't know, so you just better exist for the
1: moment and make the best of the moment or other conclusions like that that are very damaging. Yeah, and it's also very hard to start from a position of empiricism and emerge with conclusions like pleasure is the goal of life. Right, right or
0: there's no supernatural gods, the universe is infinite in space, the universe is eternal in time, whether we agree with those things or not, those are conclusions based on deductive reasoning that neither Epicurus nor us nor other human being is ever going to be able to determine
1: directly from their own sensations what is true. So on the first paragraph, page 137, he says that other plausible reasons for ascribing empiricism and belief in the infallibility of sensation to Epicurus will disappear if the ambiguities be cleared up that in here in the statement, all sensations are true. This is something that gets repeated quite a lot among the commentators on the ancient texts that Epicurus said that all sensations were true. And it's the kind of phrase that's very prone to being misread in some very stark ways. So Cassius, I know in the past you've talked about this as all sensations are not true in the sense that what they report is absolutely factual. They are maybe trustworthy in the sense that like witnesses in a courtroom, they don't have all the information and maybe some of the information they are reporting is wrong, but they are reporting it to the best of their ability, et cetera.
0: Yeah, Joshua, in my reading of DeWitt over the years, this has seemed to me to be one of his favorite topics to talk about, and this subsection is lengthy. DeWitt even wrote a separate article devoted entirely to this question, and we're probably not going to hit all of the detail that he goes into about it, but let's try to hit some of the high points. Right now, the section that you're looking at when you call that to my attention What DeWitt is talking about is that to a significant extent, that position was not any different than what Aristotle himself had taken in terms of the perception of particulars to be always true. And DeWitt gives a footnote for that. And I think if we were to go and take a tangent into Aristotle, we would be able to see that that aspect of looking at perceptions as something that you can't get behind is not all that unique to Epicurus. Where you go when you look at the general question, though, is. And again, people who want to dismiss Epicurus. He said, all sensations are true. Ha ha, that's obviously not true. What about illusions? What about all sorts of mistakes that we make? Just because I look out into the horizon and see what appears to me to be a body of water underneath some trees does not mean that it is really true that there is an oasis with real water there. And so a part of this issue here, a significant part of it, is that each sensation, because it's reported without opinion, is simply reporting raw data that is being processed in your mind. It is true in the sense of honest. It is true in the sense of without telling you its own opinion. It is true in the sense of being an appearance that your eyes are presenting to your mind to process. If you look at the desert and you see an oasis out there, it is in your mind whether you conclude it is an oasis, because all the eyes have done is present to you a series of data points about color and size and shape and things like that. The deduction that it is, in fact, a body of water is in your mind separate from the sensations itself. The vision of that is reported truly to you. The analogy that DeWitt uses frequently is to a witness in court who will get on the witness stand and say what they saw about a particular incident, but that person may not have seen the full incident. They may not have been paying attention. They may have been looking at it from another direction or seeing it out of a side of their eye. And as we know, people describe differently what they see or what they hear or what they touch even. It's not that those witnesses are trying to deceive you. It is not that they are presenting a conclusion to you that is something that you have to accept. They're simply producing raw data that, in the case of a courtroom, the jury has to decide what the final facts are, what it adds up to in terms of the big picture. And so the statement that all sensations are true is nothing more than that they are produced by your organs of sensation just as they are. And if you're nearsighted, if you're hard of hearing, If your sense of smell is distorted by COVID-19 or something else, then you will not be able to use those sensations to form a full picture of a particular situation. All you can do is take the information it gives you and process it. If you know that you're nearsighted, if you know that you're hard of hearing, if you know that you've got COVID, if you know you have some other distortion, if you know that it's foggy, if you know that it's dark then you realize that the data being presented to you is distorted by these intervening events. Lucretius goes in great detail in book four about illusions, about standing in a boat and going down the the river and having an illusion that it's the river bank that's moving rather than you, putting the oar in the water and thinking that it's bent. Epicurus was well aware that every sensation is not true to all the facts. The important point to stress there is that how do you correct, how do you know what is the truth when one sensation indicates to you that the ore in the water is bent, but when you pull the ore out of the water, it's not bent? It's the repeatability, the repeated comparison of one sensation against the other that gives the mind the ability to assemble a true picture of facts. The ore does appear to be bent when it's in water. The ore does not appear to be bent when it's out of water. It's up to your mind to understand the difference in context and pull together the big picture from the different and separate observations. So all sensations are true is correct and totally defensible when understood from the point of view of the word true being reported honestly and without its own
1: opinion yeah and certainly you could find examples in arenas where certain animals are better at you know hawks have better eyes than humans Mm -hmm. does that mean that their sight is more true than humans it's that kind of question that we're interested in what he goes on to say here is that both aristotle and epicurus recognized the possibility of error in sensation but that epicurus because of the time he lived in was more keenly interested in this factor because by his time the vogue of skepticism had made the creation of a criteria of knowledge a vital necessity. He was consequently at pains to locate the source of error, and he found it in the hasty action of the automatic mind.
0: Right. Error is in the mind and not in the senses. One of the statements DeWitt makes that I'm looking at right now is on page 138, quote, the fallacies of those who impute to him belief in the infallibility of sensation Lie partly in their failure to observe the ambiguity of the word true and in their confusion of truth with value. And that's basically another way of saying the observation that the ore in the water is true is not wrong. It appears to be what it is, but it's not of value in completely determining the true shape of the ore. You have to take the ore out of the water, compare it with other observations when it's not in the water, and then you have the
1: ability to have a more accurate to the facts conclusion. The other thing probably to mention here is that it would be possible to train your mind in certain areas to account for the error that it makes, right? So, for example, in the case of the ore that looks bent underwater, blue herons are actually very good at standing above water and looking into it because that's how they get their food. So, if you were a human, for example, who spent most of their life spearfishing from the surface, that would give you better intellectual equipment when you're approaching some of these problems.
0: I don't know why this comes to my mind in that sense. It's kind of like if you're manning an anti aircraft gun and you're shooting at airplanes near the sky, you're going to have to shoot ahead of
1: the airplane in order to hit it. Yeah, the old joke from Star Wars is the Imperial Stormtrooper Marksmanship Academy. <laughs> Because they always manage to shoot right behind them.
0: So we probably shouldn't omit the example that they seem to give the most frequently, the issue of the tower at the distance looks round. But when we get close to it, it appears to be square. And it's obvious that when you walk up to it closely that it is square. But from a distance, you can't tell that it's got these sharp edges. The edges of the turrets may look round. And so, again, that's an example of how it can look differently at a distance from when you're close up. And the way you determine how it is in fact shaped is you don't just speculate about it. You just don't pull out your calculator and try to calculate something. You walk up towards it. And the closer you get to it, the more accurate your vision is, which probably brings up a point that Joshua and I were discussing before we started that one thing that Epicurus observed that you don't have clear vision at a distance. That's the problem with looking up at the sky, is that you're not close enough to it to be sure what's really going on. You have to make your deductions based on the best reasoning that you can. The further something is away, the less clear vision you have of it. And those kind of rules of the way things are, are a large part, again, of what we're talking about, too, is that you know there are illusions out there in the world. You know there are things so far away that you don't have the ability to see them up close. You know that people report things differently. You know that when you put the ore in the water, that you have a bending effect from the water. So therefore, you have to keep those things in mind and make your conclusions based on taking those things into account. The reason we're talking about this is because you do have sensations to process, but you can't process them accurately unless you think about how they work, which means thinking about the possibility of illusions and the possibility of distortions And that's exactly what Lucretius does at length in Book 4, and almost certainly Epicurus would have done in the full version of On Nature and would have been a significant part of their discussions.
1: And Cassius, almost the whole letter to Pythocles is on issues like this one, where he talks about how to explain phenomena, particularly atmospheric phenomena or phenomena in the sky. We spent almost a whole third episode in that series just on the question of the size of the sun and sometimes the answer is just to withhold judgment when there's multiple competing explanations that could each do a satisfactory job of explaining the phenomena you simply withhold judgment that's another way to get around the error that the mind is constantly involved in you don't just latch on to the first idea that you come across you think about it come up with other explanations and then if you can't rule all of them out except for one and know that that one's right, you simply withhold judgment as to which one you think is true.
0: Yeah, the the reason we're talking about this is not because we're trying to be astronomers. The reason we're talking about it is not because we're trying to become better scientists. It's because if we're going to reach any conclusions of importance about the way to live at all, we have to know how the universe operates and how we operate. And we have to start off with knowing that the sensations are reliable, that we're not living in a cave like Plato asserted, But then once we understand that the sensations are reliable, we have to determine how to use them in order to think properly based on these things. This is an important part of daily life to be able to think clearly on something and to know that illusions and other distortions are possible. But that you don't just throw up your hands and say, oh, my gosh, there's no way to know anything. Let's just go to the temple and be told what to do. You have the ability, if you take the time to think about these things and understand how the senses operate and the mind processes it, to have confidence in your reasoning process. If you don't understand why you can have confidence in your senses, then you can't have confidence in anything.
1: Yeah, and Lucretius in the first book uses a particularly dark example in the case of Agamemnon and his daughter Iphigenia, but the ultimate point is that when people are acting on bad information and they're not thinking clearly, they make bad decisions. That's kind of what it comes down to. It's
0: important to at least be aware that Epicurus spends significant time in his principal doctrines on these topics. Starting for example at principal doctrine 23, quote, if you fight against all sensations, you will have no standard by which to judge even those of them which you say are false. And then 24, if you reject any single sensation, and fail to distinguish between the conclusion of opinion as to the appearance awaiting confirmation and that which is actually given by the sensation or feeling or each intuitive apprehension of the mind, you'll confound all other sensations as well with the same groundless opinion, so that you will reject every standard of judgment. If you're saying that a particular sensation is false, then you give up the ability to check it because you're then questioning the reliability of sensations. You need to accept that a sensation is what it is and realize that what you're talking about in terms of true and false is the conclusion of opinion and not the sensation itself. The second sentence of that 24 is, and if among the mental images created by your opinion, you affirm both that which awaits confirmation and that which does not, you will not escape error. Since you have preserved the whole cause of doubt in every judgment between what is right and what is wrong. He's discussing the mental images created by your opinion. And if you don't recognize, as Joshua was talking about a minute ago, that some of those opinions need additional confirmation and some of them don't then you won't be able to, again, distinguish between what you say is true and what you say is not true, because you won't have this understanding that a particular image, a particular opinion,
1: needs further confirmation through the census. One thing that occurs to me to say, imagine if you're like looking at a steak, but you smell apple pie. Does the scent of apple pie prove that your eyes are lying about the steak? Does this side of the steak prove that your sense of smell is lying about the existence of the pie? It simply doesn't make sense to think like that. And that's stated explicitly
0: in Lucretius, how the nose is not going to give you any information about sight and sight is not going to give you any information about smell. Your mind is going to assemble the different sensations that are coming in at the same time and produce a picture in your mind. But that picture is something created in your mind by your mind operating. It's not the operation of the senses themselves, so that any error in the conclusion that you reach by assembling these sensations is not the fault of the sensations. On page 141 of DeWitt, he talks about the witnesses in court analogy. Quote, the sensations are consistently regarded as witnesses in court. Their evidence may be false, as in the case of the oar, half immersed in the water, which appears to be bent. False evidence is to be corrected by that of other sensations. The evidence of all witnesses must receive attention. The volitional mind, as opposed to the automatic mind, which errs, functions as a judge. And, as everybody knows, juries and judges are not always right. They do the best they can with the information that they're given. But it's important to keep in mind that Epicurean philosophy doesn't give us a supernatural God or a universe that's feeding us information into our minds. It's totally possible that we will go through a lot of time and not understand the big picture and have our opinions be wrong. That's a fact of life that we can either throw up our hands and crawl in a hole about, or we can dig into the evidence and dig into the way the mind works and do the very best we can with the evidence.
1: Yeah, and that point he makes about the rational as opposed to the automatic mind, it's important to know that it is the volitional mind that judges the error and not the competing sense perception. When you're taking in information from multiple witnesses, it's not one witness, i.e. one sense, that judges the other sense. It's the judge in this case. It's the volitional mind that's doing that work because the senses cannot judge each other. They don't have that capacity
0: the judge is separate from the witness. They're not the same thing. They're two separate entities in a courtroom, and they're separate parts of the big picture. The eyes are not sending down the optical nerve, a statement, I see a dog, I see a cat. That conclusion process of what you
1: see is in the brain. Here's how he states it. He says, When he's talking about the senses as criteria because they are irrational and capable of memory and pronounce no judgments, he says sensation is incapable of memory. It can no more recall a given stimulus than a house can recall the impact of a ball thrown against its wall. The sensation merely registers a stimulus, a melody, for example. It's the memory that says, I have heard this before. It is the intelligence that says, home, sweet home that's where the recognition is happening. It's not happening in the senses.
0: As we begin to reach the end of this section, at the top of 142 is a particularly important paragraph that I think we should treat in detail. It says that nowhere in the letter to Herodotus or in the authorized doctrines do we find the statement that, quote, all sensations are true, unquote. On the contrary, the epitome begins by urging the student to give heed to the sensations under all circumstances, and especially the immediate perceptions, whether of the intelligence or of any criteria whatsoever, which manifestly allows some value to all sensations and special value to immediate sensations. At the end of the epitome, the student is warned to check his own observations against those of others. These authentic statements are incompatible with the belief in the infallibility of sensation. They presume belief in gradations of value among sensations and also the need of perpetual caution against error. Which, again, just takes us back to the big point being that while the sensations are the basis of all our knowledge, we have to process the sensations into conclusions and opinions that those are not just handed to us automatically by the operation of the eyes or the ears or any other sense organ. A knowledge and an understanding of how it all fits together and how they work together is crucial to being able to accurately work with that information.
1: What this demonstrates partially, Cassius, is the danger of oversimplification. You can see how someone would read Epicurus's texts and come away with ideas like all sensations are true, but that would be a gross (laughs) oversimplification of what he actually said to the point where it's actually misleading because Epicurus's language is always very technical, very precise. He's always very precise when he's speaking. So, for example, when people say, Oh, Epicurus thought that pleasure was the absence of pain, when you go to what Epicurus actually says in his principal doctrines, It's much more technical and precise and complete would be the word than simply saying pleasure is the absence of pain. And therefore, it's the absence of pain that is the good. You know, when he says things like the limit of the quantity of pleasure is the removal of all pain. There's a lot more going on in that sentence than simply saying that pleasure is the absence of pain. It's the same in the case of all sensations are true. That takes everything that he had to say about sensations and tries to boil it down into five words. But just by the process of doing that, it comes across as being completely misleading. Yeah, and that's the big picture observation that I hope we bring some value
0: through these podcasts and stressing, because it's very easy to dive into a detail and get obsessed with a subtlety that is important, perhaps, but does not affect the big picture. We talk constantly on the forum about issue after issue after issue in which it is possible to take something alone and out of context and think, my gosh, this is totally contradictory with what I understood Epicurus to be talking about in general. This lacks compassion. This lacks understanding of the way things are. This lacks practicality. This lacks the detail that I want. This doesn't tell me what I'm supposed to do today. Why wasn't Epicurus like the Stoics and giving me all these precise techniques of how to spend my time. As you said, Joshua, it is very easy to oversimplify, and in oversimplifying, come away with a totally wrong understanding of the big picture. You have to constantly be able to flip back and forth between the details and the upper level viewpoint. You don't constantly need all these details, but you do constantly need a general understanding of the way things are.
1: Just another example would be this issue of, Oh, Epicurus only ever ate bread and water. These kind of just gross oversimplifications. When we, I mean, this is an example where we know for certain that in another instance, he asked for food that was not bread or water. (laughs) You can kind of see the seed of where it starts, but then it just gets taken to these absurd conclusions that if you really looked into the text and and made an honest effort to study them and to see what they were actually really saying in depth and considered in light of everything that he wrote, you would come away with a completely different conclusion and a far more accurate one. When you're living your day-to-day life in the real world, the
0: truth is that there are lots of controversies out there. There are lots of people who have different agendas, religion being the number one example, but all sorts of other examples could possibly be given as could be given as well. And one of the best ways of arguing against something is to take something in isolation and out of context. Cicero being a lawyer and our discussion today of courtroom analogies is a useful thing to remember. What are lawyers generally going to do to muddy the water, to sow confusion, to create doubt in any kind of a legal case, more so than to isolate some small fact, which when taken out of context appears to be huge, but when seen in the big picture is totally reconcilable That kind of an argument, people say you can prove anything you want from the Bible by reading a particular passage, and that's what we're talking about to some degree here. The isolated details have meaning only in the full context. What's the other example of the blind man with the elephant? You you touch the elephant's trunk or you touch the elephant's leg and you come away with a totally insufficient picture of what an elephant really is. It doesn't mean that the touch and the examination of the trunk is wrong or the examination of the leg is wrong. It's just that it's not sufficient to provide the full picture unless you put it Into context with many other observations as well. Take some statement somebody makes out of context and you can make that person look to be an idiot. You're never going to have an experience on life after death. You're never going to have an experience of how big the universe is. So Epicurus is willing to go further than simply experience.
1: You kind of mentioned this at the beginning, I think, of this episode, Cassius, when you said that empiricism sounds great. It doesn't sound like there would be anything wrong with that. And for certain disciplines, that's true. Empiricism works for disciplines where you are looking for a narrowly defined set of answers to specific problems. But in the case of a total philosophy, like Epicurus is trying to build, empiricism does not answer anything like his total purpose. It doesn't tell you anything about ethics, for one thing. There's no description of what we sense that can tell us anything really uh, logically about what we ought to do. This is David Hume's guillotine, right? This is his is-ought problem. There's no description of how things are that can tell us how they ought to be. And so empiricism, and like Martin was saying last week, empiricism coupled with things like theory and modeling gives us an approach that works in science like the questions that we're trying to answer with scientific inquiry. But it has nothing to say about things like, what is the goal of life? How should we live? What does the good life look like? All of these other questions, which are sort of the principal questions that Greek philosophers were trying to answer, empiricism simply does not answer to that purpose.
0: And that helps us bring this episode to a conclusion today, Joshua, hitting that big point about why we're talking about empiricism. If Epicurus was simply an empiricist, he would not be able to give us the answers that we're looking for. This gives me the opportunity to correct a statement I made, I think, in the last episode where I was labeling the whole field of empiricism as something that had been named after Sextus Empiricus, but that's not correct. This is what Wikipedia says about this under empiricism. Empiricism in the philosophy of science emphasizes evidence, especially as discovered in experiments, It is a fundamental part of the scientific method that all hypotheses and theories must be tested against observations of the natural world rather than resting solely on a priori reasoning, intuition, or revelation. Now, here's the part that I missed last week. The English term empirical derives from the ancient Greek word imperia, which is cognate with and translates to the Latin experientia from which the words experience and experiment are derived. I think that helps put into perspective why we're concerned about empiricism. The British empiricists, these people who became, like John Locke, more identified with empiricism in more recent times, they're focusing on everything comes from experience. And we've been talking about everything based on sensation, but if you think about the term empiricism being a reference to experience, What they're saying, these empiricists, is that if you don't experience it yourself, you're not going to be able to come up with any conclusions about it. You can only confirm that which you've experienced yourself. And again, as we said earlier in this episode. You have no experience as to what happens after death. You have no experience as to how the universe was formed. You have no experience as to how big the universe is. And yet those are questions that people want to think about and have some comfort about lest they get obsessed and confused and afraid that there's some supernatural explanation that promises to harm them unless they do certain things that priests or somebody else wants them to do epicurus is willing to go further than just his own personal experience and he is willing to take his personal experience through senses and based on that derive conclusions that are logically consistent with that experience if you simply stop at experience you're just going to say i don't know about all these other questions obviously it's very difficult and subject to error to talk about things that you've not experienced for yourself and yet we do that all the time We think that even though we may not have been to South Africa, that things work in South Africa, in nature, largely the way they work in Berlin or Washington or New York or Los Angeles. We don't have personal experience of life in places we've never been to before, but we have confidence that nature works consistently. And that's why it's important not to limit yourself to an empirical view of philosophy in which if you haven't experienced it yourself, then there's no way to have any knowledge about it. Related to that is going to be the question that we discuss next week, which is going to be that of anticipations. Anticipations is going to be a complicated subject, but we invite you to drop by the forum and let us know your comments and thoughts on that topic or any other topics you'd like to talk about. Thanks for your time this week, and we'll see you again next time.